If you have a Bible, we're going to be in one text primarily this morning. I'm going to bring in kind of other texts, but we're going to use one text that we're just kind of going to jump off of uh, primarily this morning, and that's in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8. Isaiah 26, verse 8 is where we're going to kind of primarily sit uh, this morning. And uh, we're just asking God if he would uh, just guide and direct uh, and, and really set us on a, on a good foundation and direction this morning uh, as we aim to really make much of him in the year that he's given us. So let me pray and ask God would do uh, exactly that. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you for a moment like this that we can have. What a great way for us to really set our year off right, to be gathered together, um, God, under the teaching of your word, God, singing together, being reminded of your goodness. Uh, I thank you for the way that we could celebrate your generosity towards us and the opportunity that you give to us to love our neighbors close, near, and far. And God, uh, we just, we want to hear from you in this, in this moment. God, we want to be uh, people who follow you, who listen to you, and do what you say. And so, God, we, we need you for that. Um, we don't want this to be something uh, where we are just going through motions. God, we don't want this to be something where it's all in our own power. Uh, we need your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you speak? And would you bring encouragement where it's needed? Would you bring conviction where it's needed? Would you bring wisdom? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you, would you speak? I want to give you the invitation um, really just to pray that simple prayer. Uh, no matter where you are in your kind of walk with God or relationship with God, um, maybe you'll just kind of start this year off with just that really simple prayer. Um, God, would you speak to me and allow me to hear from you? Just really simply, just pray that prayer. God, would you speak to me and allow me to hear from you? God, I want to pray that very same thing over me. God, I pray that you'd speak to me and that I'd hear from you. God, I pray that um, we would just know that you are here. God, give us a real awareness of your presence and your power in this moment. I thank you for your word that is living and is active. Uh, let it do its work in us. Uh, we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, I was at a youth event, and I used this illustration, um, and it went a lot better then than it did this morning. So um, we'll try it again. Now, that's the great thing about having two services. So um, I used this illustration about this match. I said, this match uh, is like a picture of what your life is like. So uh, we have a life. All the firemen in the room got real nervous. Um, so your life starts out pretty bright, pretty strong, lot in front of you, uh, and then you know you kind of get into your high school years and you're burning even a little bit brighter there, and then you get into your college years and you're trying to hit some kind of stride, trying to figure it out, and then you get into your uh, 30s, and then by your 40s, uh, things start to creak and ache a little bit. Uh, my elbows hurt for six months, I don't even know why. Uh, and then you kind of get into your 50s, and now you're smart enough to where I don't care. Whew, that got hot. Um, and then next thing you know, it's done. Um, not that you're going to die in your 50s. But <laughs> I just literally couldn't hold the match anymore. 
and I, and I gave that illustration just as a, as a picture because when you're, especially when you're like a middle school teenager, you know, you're like invincible. You're gonna live forever. You don't know. But like to kind of give that as a picture of really how the Bible speaks about your life. And so what I wanted to kind of jump off from that, and as we are heading into a new year, um, just to kind of think in that frame of, well, if that is true about the brevity of life, what, what does God say about how I should how I should spend my life. When I uh, started in ministry, I was at a church in Tallahassee, Florida. I was a children's pastor and like a college pastor at the same time. And uh, I took uh, our college group, there were about 12 of us. Uh, we went to a conference and at that conference, there was a guy who was preaching and he was preaching on this whole idea, this whole idea of not wasting your life. Uh, and he's written a book about it, books about it. Uh, but it was something that I'd never really heard and something I certainly never really considered. But from that, God really used that moment to kind of galvanize in me a desire to not only not waste my my life, which my kind of story of uh, especially end of high school and really all throughout college was I had wasted so much of my life, but really, how do I spend my life uh, and impress upon Jesus, impress upon people to make much of Jesus with their life and in some way kind of persuade others not to waste their life? It just became this real kind of heart's cry that I feel like God really kind of galvanized in me. He's like, that's what I want to spend my life doing. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how that's going to manifest itself. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I just, God really started to speak to me um, in that. And I think it's still a good thing for us to consider uh, today, especially as we're entering into a new year, because in our world, in your world, there's so much that competes to be the ultimate thing in your life. There, there's so much that competes to be uh, the center of your life. There's, there's so much from the outside, and then we even have these kind of like intrinsic things that start to kind of rise up that all want to be ultimate in our life. And the, 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 the problem is we all fall for it. If, if we went around the room and I just said, okay, we'll just share stories of when you've placed something at the center of your life that everything orbited around and how it ultimately broke your heart. We would all have some kind of story like that. Maybe as well, well, I put money at the center and everything in my life kind of orbited around that and eventually broke my heart. Or, or I had put this other relationship there and everything orbited around that. That was the ultimate thing. And it broke, or I put my vocation or I put this thing or I put this idea. It was something that I held up as ultimate and it, and it, and it ultimately broke my heart. Now, there are important things in life. There are critical things, but there's really only one ultimate thing that your life can orbit around. And if you look on the pages of Scripture, what you will see in the Bible, the ultimate thing that's presented to followers of Jesus, the ultimate thing to us is the glory of God or the weight of God. And it's because God is ultimate, therefore his name, his fame his glory and his reputation is what is ultimate. The verse that we're kind of springboarding from and, and going to be launching out of uh, this morning is Isaiah 26, 8. We'll put it up on the screen. Um, th this is kind of a little bit of a mashup with the NIV translation and the, and the New American Standard um, 
But it says this, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. If you look at Isaiah chapter 26, this is a, a, a lyric from a song that the people of God were singing. So they're, they're together, they're actually singing this as an anthem um, over them. And what God's doing in this verse is he's helping us to understand what is ultimate and what our world and what our lives can orbit around, namely uh, the, the fame and the renown of God. We're, we're going to do something here. Um, it, we're going to do kind of like a little Bible study on this verse. So if you, if studying the Bible is new to you, if studying the scripture is kind of new to you, if it's not something that you're really familiar with or comfortable with, maybe it seems like, gosh, it's just so daunting. I don't even know how to start. This might just be one way, one way that you can start to kind of work through scripture. Um, and, and we're just simply going to take parts of this verse and, and just kind of meditate on what those parts are and pull things out of what those parts are. So this verse begins with an affirmation. And the affirmation is very simple, um, but it's extremely profound. And the affirmation is this, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And, and it calls us to action. Uh, it calls us to make a decision. It calls us to evaluate where we are in our allegiance of our heart. And the verse opens with a yes. Yes. And then Lord. And that's the whole theology right there. That's where we start. It, and it's not even a discussion on what we're saying yes to or how long we're saying yes for or, or where we are saying yes to going. All the information that we have and all the information that we need is that we're saying yes, Lord. I'm saying yes to the sovereign one who is in charge of the whole universe. The scripture says he holds it together by the power of his word. He holds our future. And so given that I am talking to the Lord, I say yes. Lord, I, all I need to know for me to give you my life and allegiance is to know that you are involved. Lord, if you are involved, I say yes. If you're the one who's asking, I say yes. Yes, Lord. It's not saying yes to a map or to a blueprint or to a plan. We're saying yes to God because we believe in who he is. And because of that, whatever is on the other side of Lord, comma, we're good with because we recognize who he is, okay? So if you in your life had said, yes, Lord, then this verse applies to you because it moves on to a, an expression of that affirmation. There's, there's, a, there's a next step. So yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth. When the scripture's talking about walking, it's talking about the, the way you live your life. It's, it's talking about walking in a particular way. So, so immediately, uh, we know that it's not just talking about us just kind of sitting in a room together and gathered like this and singing songs, uh, but it's saying, yes, Lord, and it instantly engages 
every part of our lives. And it should translate into how we live out every part of our life. All of our life is affected by and infected by our saying, yes, Lord. So when we have phrases on shirts and banners and things around here that say all of life is all for Jesus, our theological framework as a church, our frame of thinking comes from this idea. Yes, Lord, you are sovereign. You are Lord over all. And so we are going to walk in the ways of your truth. Our life is going to align or be lined up under the way that we walk under your truth. So there, there's, there's work. So, and it's because the Bible does not offer us a, a compartmentalized Christianity, even though we like to treat it like that. The Bible doesn't offer a carp Man, easy for you to say. Carp, I need to read it. A compartmentalized Christianity. Meaning we have like different aspects or seg segments or relationships or, or things or, or accounts that, yes, Lord, you can have those. We, we have a day that we will give you. We'll have a, a couple hours that we will give you. But not everything. Not, not all of it. And, and what Isaiah, what God is giving to his people to sing as an anthem is we're saying, yes, Lord, we'll walk out our whole life, which means my vocation, which means my marriage, which means the way that I parent, which means my finances. God looks at every square inch of his creation and says, it's all mine. And we say, yes, Lord, it's all yours. Every, every square inch of who we are, every square inch of what we have, it's all yours. And, and it's all sacred because it's yours. And because it's sacred, we want to steward it like it's sacred. Because it matters to you, it's going to matter to us. In other words, what we're reading here is that it means something. It has an effect on your life to say, yes, Lord. After that expression, there's this expectation. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you. We wait eagerly for you. What the verse is saying is that there is a certain hope in our lives that the Son of God is coming. And I know this type of teaching can sound like a guy on a soapbox kind of talking about the end of the world, but it's all through the scriptures. And Jesus is coming back for his people. There is a life beyond this life that for the Christian, eternity is reality. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and Thessalonica was a very wealthy kind of trade city, but the, this new church there, these new believers, were under heavy persecution. And they were starting to have kind of questions about, about well, what, what's going on. And so Paul writes them to encourage them, and he writes them and encourages them with the return of Jesus. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you 
you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If you're not a Christian or not familiar with the Bible or Christians, you're like, these people are crazier than I thought. This is what we believe. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And Paul says, I know there's persecution. I know there's confusion. I know there's a lot that's going on. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God, we are eagerly waiting for you. And that expectation for someday has to inform and inspire our today. Because without the hope of the resurrection, both of Jesus and of us, we will not see clearly that the things of this world are not ultimate. If we don't clearly see the reality of the resurrection, if we don't see clearly the reality of eternity, we, we will uh, be duped into thinking that, man, all these things of this world are ultimate things. But it's the expectation of a new heaven and earth that carries us through these difficult moments. We can say, yes, Lord, all the way to the end. We can have hope in difficult times because there's an assurance of the return of Jesus. Which means for that the Christian, get this, that if you are a Christian, death is not your enemy. If you're a Christian, death is not your enemy. For the follower of Jesus, the grave has been conquered. For the follower of Jesus, the grave has been conquered. I know it's not Easter morning, but I'm feeling kind of Eastery right now. Death is a, is a heartbreaker for sure. But for the Christian, it can't shut you down. Death is not our greatest enemy. A wasted life is our greatest enemy. For the, for the Christian, death is not your greatest enemy, but wasting your life is. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians. He says this, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Now listen to how he describes these people. You do not want this to be the description over your life. He says, their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. He's not talking necessarily about food, but he is talking about appetites. And he's saying whatever they have an appetite for, whether it's lust or acquiring things, or if they have an appetite for anger or violence, whatever they have an appetite for, that is their God. That's what rules them. That's what has mastery over them. They are enslaved to their appetite. And then he says, and their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame, meaning there are shameful things in this world that our culture glorifies. There are shameful things that become jokes or even become a status symbol. There, there are shameful things um, that get glorified. And then he says, their mind is set on earthly things. 
Their mind is set on earthly things. Where your mind sits determines your mindset. Where your mind sits determines your mindset. If your mind sits on heavenly things, on the things of God, on godly things, you will have a godly mindset. If your mind sits on earthly things, worldly things, anti-God things, you will have an anti-God mindset. Don't let it sit on earthly things. My uh, watch and my phone have this uh, handy kind of convicting app. I think it's an app. I don't know what it is, but it's a report. It's a report that shows up that said, hey, this is what you did this week, all week on your phone. This is where you spent time. It's kind of like a, sends me like an audit. I don't even know how to turn it off, but I think I probably need it. It's probably God, from God sending it to me. He's like, hey, just so you know, this is where you're spending your time. It might be helpful for you. It might be helpful for your family to take an audit of where your mind sits. It might be helpful for you to do an audit of our time, maybe our finances. But like, what what do I let my mind sit in? Why do I have the mindset that I do? It's because my mind sits a certain place. So maybe that's a good thing for 2022. But listen what Paul says. So don't be like them. Don't let your God be, don't, don't let your belly be your God. Don't, uh, don't, don't glory in shameful things. Don't set your mind on earthly things. But he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. I think so often we kind of get caught up um, like we feel like, well, no, this is our citizenship. This is, this is our ultimate home. And, and Paul talks about this. The scriptures talk about this. This is, this is not it. This, this, is, this is not it. When, when um, I mentioned I, I did that trip to London a, a month ago or so, and one of the pastors that went with us, uh, I can say his name, he doesn't go here, Luke at Gateway, um, we would be riding around on these buses and stuff, and he goes, he goes, you know, all of a sudden I just want to start talking with a British accent, and then he would have some lousy British accent. And he's like, don't you just feel like that? Like you're, like you're here and you need to start talking with an accent? I was like, no, I don't feel like that. And this is why people from other countries don't like Americans, because you come in and you act like a worse version of them here. But I think a lot of times we start to walk around with like the earthly accent. And we don't sound like our citizenship is someplace else. We don't sound like citizens of heaven. We don't look like citizens of heaven. We don't act like citizens of heaven. But Paul says, but your citizenship is in heaven. And so we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, sovereign God, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious power. This is how we get our minds and lives around a wasted life being our greatest nightmare and dying being our greatest gain. The same apostle Paul, he he says to live, that's Christ. To die, that's gain. You're like, is this guy crazy? What are you talking about? Dying is gaining? Nothing in our world, nothing in our culture teaches that. And Paul says, no, I, know, I, I can say that because my citizenship is in heaven and I know what the ultimate thing is. And I know that, that dying is not my greatest enemy, but we, me wasting my life is. For the Christian, a long life is not the ultimate goal. It's good, it's okay to have but a life that matters is the ultimate goal. 
So death is not your ultimate enemy. You wasting your life is. And we will not see God move in us and through us or transform the community around us or transform our our campuses or your neighborhood or your family or your generation unless you are tuned into eagerly awaiting the return of King Jesus. And finally, that verse ends with this. It ends with our motivation. Isaiah 26, 8, for your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. What, what the scripture's teaching us is that the end of this life, all that we will be left is the glory and the fame of God. That word renown is probably the most unfamiliar kind of word in there, but it's the state or quality of being widely honored and acclaimed. It's, it's a resounding anthem that never ends. If you want a picture of, well, what does that kind of renown look like? Uh, in, in just a, a few weeks, there's gonna be a, a small little game called the Super Bowl where a hundred plus million people will tune into this. And if you're a Cardinals fan, you're hoping that your team's gonna be there. So keep hoping. Um, And you're gonna see people in jerseys and people with their face painted and people screaming their heads off. And all across the country, all across the world, people will be yelling at their television. And you will know, you will know exactly where their allegiance lies. They will be vocal about it. They'll be demonstrative about it. They'll demonstrate it. That's renown. That's what a, a generation of Jesus followers passionate about the fame and the glory of Jesus. That's what that looks like. Like you know exactly who they're for. I'm not saying that we all need T-shirts with Jesus on it, or we need to paint our face, or we need to like yell and scream at everybody. I'm not saying that. But you live your life the the way that Jesus has imaged so that you become winsome to those who do not yet have life in, in Christ. Like it's undeniable about where your allegiance lies because you live like the one that you have allegiance to. It's been said the church is called to be the replacement of Jesus in a given community, doing what he would do, going where he would go, teaching what he would teach. In other words, like you show up to work and you work in the way that Jesus would work. You talk to your spouse the way Jesus would talk to your spouse. You parent the way that Jesus would talk to your kids. You treat your neighbor the way that Jesus would treat them, even when their dog poops in your yard over and over and over again. You sit in the school pickup line like Jesus would wait in traffic. We did a baptism video a month ago or so, whenever we did last baptisms, and one of my friends who got baptized, she said, you know, remember those bracelets, the what would Jesus do bracelets? She goes, we need to bring those back. Those were actually legit. And I understand it's kind of corny, and we're, maybe we're, we've moved on beyond that bracelet. But that idea... But that idea is so real. It's what, it's what we are called to do as image bearers. Uh, Brian Berger, one of our pastors, he says, we improv Jesus in the places that we show up in, in our life. Psalm 154, uh, one, excuse me, 145.4 says this. 
Uh, I, I love this verse. It says, one generation commends your works to another, so they, they tell of your mighty acts. For us as a church, I think this is so important. It's why we invest so much in multi-generational ministries. It's why we invest so much capital into our children's ministry, into our youth ministry, into a community like 710 of college students, young adults. It's why we have a group called SALT of senior citizens that meets here in our campus at Neil Lee's. It, it's why we invest in something like a leadership development program. It's why we have interns. Uh, because we believe so strongly the call of this verse in the Bible that one generation commends its works to another. They tell about the mighty acts of God. So when I walk into the commons and I see someone from 710 meeting with one of our senior citizens and they are sharing with one another the mighty acts of God in their life, I'm like, that's it. That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. That's what God is calling us to. It's not just that our responsibility to, to just to worship God God just kind of come together in these moments and these gatherings like this. It's our privilege to pass on the name of God to the next generation. And everyone, everyone, no matter the age, no matter the advantage or disadvantage, plays a dignified part in this. Because we are a link for the renown and fame of God from those who have gone before us to the generations to come. And the reason why the glory and the fame and the renown of God should move us is because it moves him. Really, all throughout the, the scriptures, you see that, and you're like, well, God kind of sounds like an egomaniac to me. And he would be um, if there was anything or anyone above him or greater than him or more ultimate than him. The, 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 the scripture tells us that he is above all things, that all things are by him, all things are for him. And when you contribute every part of existence of the entire universe, you have to be about your own fame and your own renown. If God wasn't so into God, he wouldn't be God. Because no one's greater and more valuable. And you really, we see this in the scriptures. In Exodus chapter 3, there's this moment. If you don't know the story, you should go read Exodus chapter 3. But God comes to Moses in the wilderness. And he calls him to lead the people of God out of bondage and uh, Egypt into the promised land. And Moses is stuttering. And he's like trying to get out of it. And he asks God the big question. He's like, listen, when I go and I say, hey, listen, it's time to let all the people go, they're going to ask, well, who even sent you here? And, he, and he's like, well, what, what should I tell them? Because I'm going to sound like a crazy person if I just show up and say, hey, it's time to let uh, the, the people of God go. They're going to ask, well, who sent you? And up until this point, God's never spoken his name to a human before. And he speaks to Moses and he says, I am that I am. The first time God gives his name to a human, he says, I am that I am. That's my memorial name. It's my name forever. It's the name that I'm going to be remembered from generation to generation. The first time God says his name, he says, I am. And Moses is like, I'm waiting for the end of the sentence. That's kind of what I asked. Like, who are you? I am. I, I be is really how it should be translated, which is not great grammar but phenomenal theology. I am, I, I be, I always will be. He tells Moses, this is my name forever. And in Acts, the scripture teaches that no other, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. And lastly, in Revelation chapter 22, verses one through five, it's, it's about the garden being restored. The, the angel 
showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and, on his, and, and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And the scripture says at the end of the day, we see his face and as we see him, his name is written on our foreheads. Does it mean that's literally written there? I think what it means is that our very lives reflect him. So all of eternity is about our lives being a reflection of his glory so that when you see people, you see Jesus. And it's the very same thing that God is inviting us into today. People who have seen him, know him through his son, Jesus. And there are people who walk around in this culture. They walk around in this world and they're reflecting the glory of God. When you walk around in your vocation, when you walk around your neighborhood and walk around your, your classes, when you walk wherever God has put you, you're walking around this culture, reflecting the glory of God and wearing his character on your face as you live for his fame and his renown, that your life would be, that your life would be a resounding anthem, meaning the song that is sung over and over and over again for the name of God. And this, to me, at this point in my life, sounds like such a gracious invitation because I have spent so many years of my life not living for the name or the fame of what's ultimate, but living for my own fame, my, my, my own name. One of the reasons that I love the opportunity to speak with youth or young adults or college students is because they can do something that I can never do. I, I, I felt like that phrase, like, like uh, getting wasted, is really so appropriately coined because it's a complete waste. And I spent so much of, of my young adult life, for, for sure, wasted and wasting my life. And one of the things, that, one of the reasons I love speaking to youth or young adults is because they can do something that I can never do. They can avoid all the shame and all the regret and all the embarrassment that comes from only living for yourself and wasting your life. And so every time I have that opportunity, I just get really excited because I get to stand in the gap and they have an opportunity to do something that I can't do now. And maybe I can stand in that gap and say, no, Jesus is better. You don't have to waste your life. No other person can rob you from the opportunity to invest your days well. No one can. There, there is no circumstance that can rob you from investing your days well. And I know even as I say that, you're thinking, well, you don't understand my circumstance. You don't understand the challenges. You don't understand how hard life is. You don't understand uh, the things that are, are limiting me. 
I, I read this uh, article, this was uh, kind of towards the end of December, but if you remember, there was a group of missionaries from Canada that went to Haiti to serve that were kidnapped. There were about 17 of them. They were kidnapped by these Haitian uh, like marauders and, and they were held ransom for a million dollars. Um, and they weren't gonna pay the ransom, so these missionaries were held in captivity. Well, the account of what they started to do was phenomenal. So here they are, they're missionaries, no freedom, very little food, very little water. Uh, they only got to go outside one hour a day. They're trapped in this small little room together. Some of them are young. There's like a three or four month old baby. There's a young baby, which I don't know why they took that baby, but there was a young baby there um, and, and these 17 missionaries. And here's what they began to get to do. So remember, nobody, no circumstance can rob you of investing your life well. They said that these missionaries, they started singing songs, singing praise and worship songs all day long. They started praying all day. At, at, at every hour, uh, they would have a different person who was assigned to lead the prayer meeting for that hour. And so they did prayer vigils all night. They sang Psalm 34 to each other. They didn't have any Bibles so they, they just kept quoting scripture that they had memorized to each other. This is why it's so important to remember scripture in case you ever get kidnapped and you don't have your Bible with you. We're captured, being held ransom, but we will not allow this circumstance to rob us of investing our lives well in this moment. So we're gonna pray. We're gonna sing the promises of God. We're gonna tell our Haitian captures that we forgive them and God loves them and they can find life in him. We're gonna quote scripture to each other. And, and, and that really is the, the appropriate word, invest, not spend. Because spend is what so many of us already do. You spend something, you spent it, it's gone. We spent it. Invest it. Invest it, it's something, it's, now it's in something that will outlast me, uh, mainly the ultimate thing. The only person who can rob you of investing your days well is you. Uh, there's an early church father, St. Arrhenius, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. And here's what he says this. He said, but the life of man is, is the vision of God. Meaning this, human action takes on even greater significance when we consider the statement, for if God's glory is man fully alive, man's life must be a noble thing. The life of every man is a manifestation of God's goodness, an insight into his generosity, a, a sign of his wisdom. It's a reflection of who God is. When we see man living well, acting generously, mercifully, courageously, we witness the nobility of human nature. This in turn is but a small intimation of the nobility of the divine nature. So when he's saying the glory of, uh, of God is man fully alive, he's not just saying you go do whatever it is that you want to do, like jumping out of airplanes and like hopping on waterfalls and stuff that makes you feel fully alive. No, he's saying you are fully alive when you are awake to who God is is when you say, yes, Lord, and what he's doing in the world, and you are investing your life into what he is all about. Uh, an inverse way of saying it, but saying the same thing, is when you are dying to yourself, you are fully alive in God. 
when you are dying to striving for your own glory and your own fame, you are fully alive in God. Now listen, you, you might be famous, you might have fame, you might have glory, you might have wealth, you might have influence, you might have success, and all that stuff is great, great. I hope you get it. If you do, invest it. Don't spend it. Invest it. Because God will be glorified in you when you become alive in Christ and when people see you alive and living for the fame of Jesus and for his purposes in this world. And, uh, and church, I just think we have so many uh, zombie Christians. So many zombie Christians that are walking around. I don't even know if this show is still on or not, but a, a few years ago there was a show called Walking Dead. And um, my wife was starting to watch the show, and I tried to sit down and kind of watch her with it. But I, and, and I'm sure it's a great show. I have no idea. But I could not get past, I could not get past how annoying the zombies were. Because I'm watching it, and it's just like a bunch of like, Aah. like the whole time. And I'm like, I can't even pay attention to what is going on, because it's just like, Aah. And I think that's how a lot of us sound to the world. That the world is looking for a way to be fully alive. And they look to us as Christians, and we're walking through life with our apathy and our like just ridiculous drama and our selfishness and our hypocrisy and our lying and our shallowness and our divisiveness and our grumpiness. And the world looks at us and it's just a bunch of, ah. The world has enough of that. They don't want to hear it from you. They, they especially don't want to hear it from Christians. What the world needs is to see the church recapture and through the renewal of the Holy Spirit, what it is to be a follower of Jesus, fully alive by biblical fidelity and radical obedience and love. In short, you know what the world needs? They need for us to be disciples who listen to God by the power of the Holy Spirit, do what he says. That's what they need. They need us to be fully alive, listening to our risen king. So I want to give you just three things real quick. Three things real quick um, as, a, as a means of, okay, how do we take this verse? How do we take this Isaiah 26, 8, and how do we actually walk it out? And I'm gonna, I want to give you three things real quick, and you can write these down as something you pray about. Maybe you talk about it as a family, uh, but, but make this your prayer. Lord, in 2022, I aim to, or will you help me to do these three things? The first thing is, Lord, will you help me to live intentionally? Live intentionally. Psalm 39.4 says, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Is. I think about this in parenting all the time. Um, my kids are still relatively young, but they've moved out of the phase where a lot of things are like their firsts, like their first step, their first word, their first this. And now, now we're kind of moving into like their, some of their lasts. Like this might be the last time they asked me to like wrestle with them. This might be the, the last time that they want to play Uno again with me. And so I'm, I'm really like, kind of trying to take this verse into my parenting, like, Lord, help me to kind of number 
number my days. James, um, who is the brother of Jesus, writes in James chapter 4. And James, uh, if you never read, he, James is pretty intense. He might not be a ton of fun at parties, but James cuts right to the point. He says this, come now, pay attention to this. This is from the Amplified Version, so it's got a little more language to it. You who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and carry on our business and make a profit. Verse 14, yet you do not know the least thing about what may happen in your life tomorrow. What is secure in your life? You are merely a vapor, like a, like a puff of smoke or a wisp of steam from a cooking pot that is visible for a little while and then vanishes into thin air. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. Now, James is not against planning. James is not against making a plan or being responsible. James is against the arrogance of you thinking that your plan is ultimate and sovereign. James is against you not submitting your life to the sovereign one and you working out of pride and arrogance thinking that you are over the Lord. The Puritans used to have this phrase where they'd say, look unto your death, which essentially just means keep, keep the, the frailty of your life in mind. Keep eternity in mind. Don't waste your days. When Christ returns, what will he find you doing? Uh, so live intentionally. Secondly, give extravagantly. That, that's what it is to, to invest how can I give away my, my stuff, my abilities, my money, my smile, my time, my life? Um, ask yourself, how could I give away me for the fame of Jesus and for the good of the world? When, when God sets up his people and they lived in this agrarian community, so he gave them a very real tangible picture. If you take a, a picture of a big field, he would say, whatever's in the center of that, that first fruits, that's mine. And whatever's on the edges, or don't glean all the way to the edges because whatever's on the edges, that belongs to a certain group of people, the, the poor, the overlooked, the oppressed, the, the, the widow. That's who that is for. So Jesus, what God is saying to his people is he's saying, yes, yes, the whole field, you're working it, but it's not all yours. The, the first fruits are mine. The edges are, are, are for the community and need around you. And then the rest of it, that, that is yours. But ultimately what God's saying, it's all mine anyway. The scripture says, what do you have that I didn't give to you? And so we, in turn, in response to that, we live and we give extravagantly, not just finances, although that's part of it, but how do you give away your, your life for the fame of Jesus? And then lastly, we love radically. God, this year, will you help us to love radically? That word radical, it means to affect the fundamental nature of something. Like you think about when Jesus shows up on planet earth and he's walking, walking around. The reason he's radical is, is not just because they thought he was saying crazy things or because he was doing crazy things, because he fundamentally changed the nature of what was happening around him. And I believe our church, through our love of our neighbor and our love of God, can fundamentally change the nature of what is around us. The apostle Paul would talk about, he said, the greatest of these is love. Jesus sums it all up. He says, look, love God with all that you have and love others more than you love yourself. In the, in the moment when, you're, when your life is over and the, and the next person that you see is Jesus, you wanna be able to say, I love you. And you wanna look back at your life and say, and my life actually matched up with that. Um, a few years ago, 
there was one of my kids' Sunday school teachers, a guy named Alan, and uh, Alan, Alan taught my oldest daughter in Sunday school, and uh, Alan was uh, in hospice, and he was near the end of his life, and so I went to go see him. And by the time I went to go see Alan, uh, he had lost his ability to speak. Uh, he was just resting in his room, uh, but you could tell he was just peaceful, um, and he was comfortable, and he knew like what the next, he knew what was happening next, and I went to go see him. And I just wanted to say, Alan, I just want to say thank you, not only as a, as a pastor, but as a, as, a, as a parent, I just want to say thank you for the investment that you made um, in, in my child. And and when I told my oldest daughter um, that I, about Alan and that Alan was going uh, to go home to be with Jesus and um, that he was kind of at the end of his life here, uh, she made a card for him, just a simple like just piece of paper that she had folded in half and she just scribbled on and it just said, you know, Mr. Allen, thank you. Uh, I love you. Jesus loves you. Something very simple like that. And she drew a little picture on there. And so I took the card to Alan. He was sitting uh, in his bed and again, he couldn't speak at that moment. And when I just said all that stuff to him, just, hey, thank you so much. And, and my daughter, Evie, made you this card. I'll never forget this. He took it. Uh, he took the paper like this and he just held it up to his nose and like just breathed it in. And it made me think of when the scripture talks about like your life as a fragrant offering and how in that moment uh, there was just this fragrance to the ministry that Alan had. And um, a month or so ago when I got to baptize my daughter, I thought about Alan. Because Alan is a part of her story of her saying, yes, Lord, I love you, Jesus. And Alan has passed away, but my daughter is loving Jesus. And so we have, um, you have two choices with your life, really. You can live a life that's just all about you and your fame and your glory and what you want to get out of this life. You can do that, but it'll look like this other match that we burned up. Um, but there's another way to live, and it's like this. It's like you take just this finite little bit of your life and you join it and you hide it in what God is doing in the world. And you have a life that looks like this, and this is a life that will outlive yours because it's a life for the fame and the glory of God. And that will never end. And so you can have your life look like this. A life that will outlast your life. You give your one life for the one who has given you life. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, we just thank you for um, the invitation that you give us in your word. God, we, we know that we don't even have the ability to say yes to you without you. And so, God, we start there and we just say thank you, God, for even the invitation. Thank you for drawing. Thank you for allowing us to see even who you are. And, God, thank you for the invitation to have a life that does uh, outlive uh, our own and, God, whatever we could kind of muster in, in this world. And, God, I pray that as a church, um, God, that you would, you by your spirit, God, would help us in this new year to live intentionally and to give extravagantly and to love radically because Jesus, that's exactly what you have done for us. We ask these things in your name, amen.